stand. Good morning and welcome to our service this morning. We are privileged to have uh, as our guest speaker for the weekend, Lewis Walton. And Lewis and his wife, Joellen, who I know is back here. Where am I, where am I missing Joellen? There she is. Okay, she's on the very, almost the back row. Lewis, you'll have to have her. But anyway, we're delighted to have them. They're not really strangers here. Over the years, they've been here on several different occasions. But many of you may not have, have met them before. But in case you have not, um, Lewis and his son, Richard, the Walton and Walton Law Firm, practice law in Marina del Rey, California. Um, they uh, are very involved in things, and, and it's really nice to have a father-son duo. I had my son working with me for a number of years. My boys grew up in our business, and it's really a wonderful thing to have family businesses. But I'm also um, pleased to tell you that in the 30-plus years that I've known Lewis, I have known him to be a very incredible scholar. He is a person that's into the Word of God, has a very clear understanding of what is happening out there in the world and able to bring that down into a way for us to be able to clearly understand through the power of the Holy Spirit where we are in the stream of time. And uh, Lewis has a background as a, as a journalist, a broadcast journalist. Uh, he uh, had the privilege in his early career to uh, cover the Cuban Missile Crisis, the assassination of John Kennedy, uh, has, is the author of 14 different books. His latest one is... Um, I don't know if it's the latest one. Is it the latest one? Okay, the latest one is the Lucifer Diary. And he brought a, a limited supply of those, which we're going to have in the church office for anyone who would like to have them. After Sabbath, you can talk to our secretary. We will have those books available for you if you'd like to have them. It's a, it's a book on the Great Controversy, an overview of the Great Controversy from a little different viewpoint. Move over three degrees and look at it through the eyes of Lucifer, the fallen angel. And it's an amazing study. But in any event, it's our privilege to have uh, Lewis and Joellen here with us. And this morning, I know you will be blessed. Lewis, thank you for being here, and God bless you in this presentation. Dan, and I'm going to move down here where I can see the jury. Okay. Well, happy Sabbath. Beautiful day. It doesn't get any better than this, does it? And para nosotros... Que hablamos la boca del cielo, feliz sábado. All right. Our emphasis this weekend is on world events and prophecy and how we cope with a world that is sliding off into madness. And thank the Lord, get into the word of God and you can cope. No problem out there the Lord can't solve. We know how the story ends. And there's a huge advantage. But the one thing that concerns me is we could preach the advent, we could preach the second coming, and maybe without meaning to lose sight of who is coming. If we preach the advent message without having Jesus as the very central theme around every one of these doctrines will have to rotate, so to speak, we've missed it. We will be informed, but we won't be converted. So this morning, I just want to take one one portion of our weekend and get our eyes back on the Lord. And I'm going to do it in a way that I don't recall I've ever seen done publicly, but it can be done. We're going to talk about Jesus' early years, his childhood and his youth. There's almost nothing that the Bible seems to say less about than that. Uh, once you get by the nativity and the flight to Egypt, You've only got 14 verses in Luke uh, chapter 2 and 3 in Matthew 2, and 
that's all. It really mentions Jesus' childhood. We know he grew up in Nazareth. We know his earthly dad was a carpenter. We know he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And then the Bible just seems to say nothing. But might I suggest, if we delve into the wonderland of Bible truth, compare Scripture with Scripture, do a little bit of intelligent, reasoned, historical research so we can place these Bible stories on the historical stage where they happen, last but not least, certainly not least, if we bother to go into a source called the spirit of prophecy, we're going to get additional views of this that just illuminate the whole early life of Christ can just suddenly become three-dimensional and fill with color. Now let's do that. Let's begin. I invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And he, Joseph, of course, arose and took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Well, there's the rather concise biblical account of that, but think about that particular pre-dawn morning. Get the picture. Just moments into his life, the Son of God is already fighting for survival. And the little donkey is quietly saddled and in the dark, and you can almost hear Joseph saying, no, Mary, don't light the lamp, I'll do this in the dark. And the few possessions of a very poor couple are tied onto the saddle, along with an elegant container filled with myrrh, something hard to come by in that time and place. Maybe a leather sack filled with gold, and a box filled with expensive frankincense, stuff that has to be imported from other cultures, other places. And with that accumulation of donated wealth, that little family will have just enough uh, economic support to get by as strangers in a foreign land. I would like to think probably if Joseph was doing this right, he tied rags to the hoofs of the little donkey so the clip-clop as they went out of the stony uh, streets of Bethlehem wouldn't be, wouldn't be heard. And long before morning twilight, they're groping their way down the mountain road out of Bethlehem, and soon, moments behind, their still warm footprints, soldiers come stampeding into Bethlehem, sent by a monster by the name of Herod. His whole career with, was crimson with murder. Uh, he's decimated the Sanhedrin. He killed the high priest Aristobulus. He ordered the strangulation of his beautiful princess wife, Mariamne. He's executed his sons, Alexander, Aristobulus, and Antipater. He executed his uncle, Joseph, and his wife's uncle and father, Antigonus and Alexander. Executed his once upon a time friends by the names of Dosithius and Gaudius, and that's just a short list. The Emperor Augustus <clears throat> was said to have remarked, it is far safer to be Herod's pig than his son. 
you're less apt to get killed. And now this vile man turns his sword against the young of Bethlehem, two years of age and younger. And the question is, why would it be two years of age? I've researched that some. There was a tradition back then that babies were nursed for two years. That was typically what was done. At the end of two years, they were weaned. So that Herod would logically have thought, anyone still at the breast could be my successor, could be my rival. I can fix that easy, just kill them all. And so his soldiers go into Bethlehem and they do that. And the infant Jesus is taken from Bethlehem, which in Hebrew just means house of bread, out into a foreign country, which in biblical terms symbolizes evil, symbolizes sin. It's a place called Mitzrayim in Hebrew. Uh, later on, the Greeks uh, changed it to Aegyptos, and from that we now call it Egypt. And for people in, in a hurry, and Joseph was undoubtedly in a hurry, you probably could get from Bethlehem to the uh, northeastern limits of Egypt in about five, six days of hard walking. And as near as we can tell from logic and geography, Joseph probably headed for a city called Matareya. Uh, it later developed the Greek name Heliopolis. Uh, but it was the closest city that Joseph could have gotten to coming down from Bethlehem across the desert. That was the place where Asenath, Joseph's wife, had come from. It was an ancient city. It was so ancient, one of the oldest cities in Egypt. It was the capital of the 15th province of Lower Egypt, and it was also the seat of worship of the sun. See, Egypt had developed this idea of worshiping created things rather than the creator. They worshiped the sun. They had priests who were devoted to the worship of the sun. They were developing a day in the week in which the sun would be worshiped. And that Egyptian idea made its way over into Persia. Later, much of the Middle East uh, accomplished uh, an absorption of that thing. And it finally found its way through a very interesting route into the Christian faith when the Roman emperor converted and Constantine established Christianity as the, uh, as the uh, religion of the Roman Empire. So here is Jesus, probably in, in that capital of the 15th province of Lower Egypt, and his earliest memories would have been of what? Just do a little thinking. His earliest memories would have been of that pungent, salty, wet smell of the river Nile flowing nearby. And he would have seen, as he began to grow up, strange pillars everywhere because Heliopolis was the place where these uh, obelisks were erected. It was called the City of Pillars. Uh, the oldest one in history, the obelisk of the I, was there in that particular city a pair of obelisks back in the old colonial days were stolen from the Egyptians by the British. One of them was taken and is now standing on the Thames Embankment in London. The other was given to the Americans, and it stands, guess where, in Central Park, New York City. Those were the twin obelisks of Thutmose III, some of the most ancient human artifacts we have on planet Earth.
So Jesus' earliest memories were of pagan pillars and a massive temple to the sun god Ray, from which robed priests would roam the streets, urging people to worship this bright glowing thing that seemed to pass over the sky every day and for which a special day of the week was devoted for celebration. Now, how long was Jesus as a youngster in Egypt? Scripture doesn't say, but you can take the beginning and ending dates of certain uh, Roman officials, and you can pretty well figure it out, that the, the stay of Jesus in Egypt with his parents was probably about two years or slightly less. We can infer that because shortly after the Bethlehem massacre, as if divine patience had just finally run out on Herod, he came down with a dreadful, painful disease. Five days before his death, he was suffering so badly he attempted suicide unsuccessfully. He then ordered the execution of his oldest son. There he is suffering in that luxurious and splendid palace he had built for himself under the palms of Jericho. Swollen with disease, ulcerated internally, scorched by thirst, burning with fever, surrounded by plotting sons and plundering slaves, detesting all and detested by everybody. A horror to everybody around him. This wretched old man, whom people had once called the Great, <laughs> lay in this savage frenzy awaiting his final hour. And somewhere in his final agony, a thought came to his mind, kind of an unnerving thought. He, he thought, wait a second, when I die, nobody's going to weep. They'll probably have a party. So he contrived a way to be sure tears would be shed at his death. On pain of death, he ordered all the nobility of the Jordan River Valley into the city of Jericho. And when Herod said, do it or else, you did it, because otherwise you got dead. He got them in there, shut them in the Hippodrome, and then sent a message to his sister Salome, saying, at the moment of my death, kill them all, have them all executed. For sheer butchery, Herod yielded to nobody. And his thinking was, there will be tears at my death. They may not weep for me, but there will be tears like a river. He just wanted tears at his death. And think about this. Heaven put Jesus on earth when Herod could do his worst. So nobody could ever say, I had it harder than he did. So here's this man choking with blood, devising massacres in his final delirium. Then the soul of Herod passes out into night, and in purple robes with a crown and scepter laid across his body, his lifeless form, his beer moves through burning incense to his grave at the Herodium, which is not that far from where Christ was born. And as Herod had feared, the day of his death became a festival. His will was disputed, his last order was disobeyed, his sons died mostly in infamy and exile. Within a hundred years, there wasn't a single living person on planet Earth to perpetuate his family name. Now think about this. That wasn't the last time Herod will see Jesus. He'll see him here. Thank God for the beautiful artistry of that picture of the second coming. Herod will see that again. He won't escape that easily. Well, now an angel comes to the little family in Bethlehem, or in Egypt, I should say, and 
And he says what we just read in Matthew 2.20, those who sought the young child's life are dead. And against this foreground, dotted with obelisks, all these pillars, and in the distance, those man-made mountains of pyramidal stone. In those days, they were covered with marble. They must have been something to see. Against that background, which Jesus is beginning as a little toddler to recognize, Joseph saddles up the faithful little donkey, and the toddler sniffs the, cement, the familiar smell of hay and grain and a sweaty little animal whose wheezy voice just may bring a smile to his face. And strong hands, rough against his skin, lift him, and he now sees the world from his mother arm, mother's arms over the long ears of a critter that sways across the, the distance from there back home. Beyond the narrow, deep green landscape of the Nile, he moves out into the blinding whiteness of Gaza. Over land once ruled by fearsome strangers called Philistines and now ruled under the iron eagles of Rome. And after five, maybe six days of weary miles on the horizon, one begins to see that low silhouette of the hills of Judea. And perhaps, probably on the way, they meet some travelers with, with news and their animated voices and strange names that Jesus as a toddler has never heard before, Salome and Antipas and Philip, and finally the dreaded name Archelius. And with that, the big man whom strangers call Joseph and whom Jesus is learning to call Ab, Abba, or Daddy. That big man shakes his head, gives the donkey's lead rope a jerk, and turns onto the road headed not for Bethlehem, but for a place up in Judea. And the steps hasten, and they travel to a place the young, uh, the, uh, with a name the youngster may have heard before, Enizira. We've anglicized that to Nazareth. Eighty miles north of Jerusalem, there's a land called Galilee. It comes from the Hebrew word galil. It means circle. And in the old days, there was a circle of 20 cities there. Uh, they existed back in Solomon's time. As a matter of fact, Solomon had given them to Hiram as a gift for his help in creation of Solomon's temple. Hiram went and looked at what he would, had been given. He was very unimpressed. He uh, chose for them the name Kabul. That's an old Phoenician term for disgusting. <laughs> and in the time of Christ, Galilee was regarded very little better. Think about it. When Nicodemus tried to speak in favor of, uh, of this new rabbi that was so challenging Jerusalem, the response from the rabbis was, Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. That was their proclamation. But ladies and gentlemen, theological experts can sometimes be wrong. And they were this time. They might themselves have searched the scriptures, for the statement they made shows deep ignorance of the very scrolls they pretended to expound. The shallowest search would have turned up four eminent prophets who either were born in or did much of their ministry in Galilee. I can think of Jonah, Elijah, Hosea, and Nahum. Not to mention Barach the Deliverer, Elan the Judge, or Anna 
the prophetess. All of them came from Galilee. But for the sophisticated classes down in Jerusalem, Galilee was the abode of the Amharats, uh, um, the illiterate countrymen, the hillbillies, if you please. They didn't have much respect. And in, in Galilee, there's this low range of mountains that rises above that deep canyon of the Sea of Galilee, and then it rolls westward until it drops into the coastal plain. And in the very heart of this area was a little hamlet in a gentle sloping valley. And in those days, you got there through a cleft in the limestone hills. There was a steep, narrow path past a couple of ancient wells, and the place, as we've said, was Ennisira. We call it Nazareth today. It was nothing but a scattering of humble cottages with white roofs. We know this from archaeological research that's been done there. They were typically little square houses, white roof, flat roofed houses, and a single room in which, from the center of which hung a lamp. It was the only ornamental item in the entire room. There was very little else in those ancient houses. Uh, along the wall, there was a ledge where there would be some earthen more vessels. Um, near the door, there'd be big, maybe one or two big clay pots filled with water, and they would stick leaves or twigs in the mouths of those pots to keep the water cool. And... Uh, at mealtime, there was a little stool that would be put in the center of the room, and a tray put on top of that, on that stool. A family would just sit on the floor around it and eat in common off that tray. On the tray would be rice or a legume, uh, maybe a little stewed fruit, if the family could afford it, possibly a little meat. And from this, the family all helped themselves in common. And before they ate and after they ate, the youngest member of the family would bring around a pitcher and a little brass uh, bowl and pour water over the hands of the entire family. Youngest person in the family did it. So a youngster whose name in Hebrew was Yeshua was the one who would have done that work. Into a house like that, went the Son of God. Well, it's been said that there are only two places in Palestine we can know to absolute biblical certainty that Jesus actually stood, the exact place. One of them is the well at Shechem, where he met that lady from the Samaritan uh, persuasion. The other one is that bend in the road. When you come down from uh, Bethany and you get that first view of Jerusalem, we know he was there because the Bible says so. I would like to suggest there's another place we can be reasonably sure he went. Out of Nazareth, there's a hill that rises maybe four or 500 feet. <coughs> and I would absolutely stake the pension fund on the probability that Jesus, as a young boy, climbed that hill. The reason I say that, as, 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 uh, as much as it may not seem apparent to you now, I was one time a young boy. And I can tell you that there's almost nothing more irresistibly inviting to a young fellow than a hill to climb. They just cry out to you to be climbed. And from the summit of that hill, if Jesus climbed that thing, what a view he would have had. To the north, there was this narrow, fertile plain from which rose the hills of Naphtali. Beyond these, on the far horizon, was the soaring mass of Mount Hermon, white with eternal snow. 
East a few miles, you could look and see the rounded summit of Mount Tabor. West, the purple ridge of Carmel, where Elijah had challenged evil face to face. Beyond that, the ocean and the white-winged sailing ships of trade. And then in the near foreground, a clutter of square, flat-roofed houses, one of which Jesus would have recognized as the home of the village carpenter, his dad, Joseph. And here, what a view there would have been, for he almost certainly stood. However peaceful that place might have then seemed in spring green and sunlight and purpling shadows, that landscape had from the very dawn of time been a battlefield of nations. I mean, pharaohs, Ptolemies, emirs, kings, princes, warlords, all had contended for that land. It had glittered with the lances of Amalekites and heard the twanging bowstrings of a warlord by the name of Sennacherib, been trodden by the phalanxes of Alexander, seen the flashing short swords of Roman infantry, which still occupied it then. And in the future, it was destined to hear the battle cry of crusaders, the bark of British and French artillery, and the swoosh of missiles, and the thud of vehicle bombs, and the thunder of jet warplanes pushing through the speed of sound. And in that plain of Jezreel, Europe and Asia seemed to merge and meet. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all of them were there fighting for contention, pushing for contention. So we have barbarism and civilization. And the history of the past and the fears of the future all seem to meet, and I think probably will meet in one final titanic struggle at the end of time. Because although I am firmly convinced that this thing called an uh, Armageddon in the Bible is basically a spiritual battle fought within the minds of people. Nonetheless, for every spiritual truth, the devil has a counterfeit. I would be very surprised if the devil doesn't have a real war at the end of time counterfeiting what happens at a place called Megiddo. Well, in Christ's time of Christ's boyhood, all that was still in the future, and here's this deceptively peaceful place, and that young fellow getting word pictures, so to speak, in his mind that he would weave into parables. And Luke 2.52 just puts it all into 14 wonderful words. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Just a sentence to describe his boyhood. But if you do a little thinking, a little research, if you look at the spirit of prophecy, how much there is to learn... We learn even more boyhood because in Luke 4.16 it talks about he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Now we know he could read. Oh, could he ever read? He absorbed so much of Torah and the prophets that on the Emmaus road he could go through them from memory and enlighten the minds of disciples who just up to that point couldn't get it. And once upon a time when a lawyer came and tried to trap him with a lawyer's verbal trick, Jesus' response was withering. He responded to that lawyer and he said, Have ye not read? Counsel, haven't you read the case law? Don't you even know the law you're trying to expound? 
Well, Jesus was well-educated, but the question is, where did he get his education? Not from the rabbis, because later on at the age of 12, he could confound the brightest minds in Israel with his questions. So where did he learn? Well, we do know that 80 years before this time, there was a leading uh, scholar named Simon ben Shatach. And he got the idea, let's establish schools for the young men of Israel around the countryside. And he, he would have uh, schools for them. But in despised and sim uh, simple Nazareth, there probably was no Beth Midrash or Beth Rabban, schools for training the rabbinate. Uh, there was probably nothing there. So the question comes back, where did Jesus learn? Well, sure, he went to synagogue every Sabbath. He heard the scriptures read. He would hear, hear Torah excerpts, for example. But where did he get that magnificent grasp of biblical truth that would enable him to speak for the two or more hours those folk were walking on the Emmaus Road and just lay out scripture for them? And my response is, where else? <laughs> he got his education at home. Jesus was homeschooled. Learned this, first of all, at his mother's knee. Now you think about that. Here is the one who had given truth to Moses. now learning to say it. And that little fellow first learns to say, Shemai Israel, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echot, learns to speak. From his earliest years, he first gets his view of truth at home. Well, we move on. Jesus spent the greatest part of his time on earth just getting ready for his mission. As a youngster, as a teenage carpenter, as a young adult, you know, passing a little notice through the streets of Nazareth. He was assembling the components of three and a half years of world-changing ministry. And I think there's a lesson in that, particularly for the young people. You know, what matters is not how big you can dream. Uh, what matters is the rasp of a tool on wood, the quality of a saw cut, the degree to which you study and remember today's school lessons. Now, dreams are wonderful things, but they're out there in the sky. They're unsupported by anything. Go back and put foundations under them. Think about this. 90% of Jesus' time on earth was just getting ready to do his job. He's here 33 years. 30 of them, he's getting ready to do the job. A uh, speech professor of my dad's one time said, Spend two hours of preparation for every five minutes you intend to annoy an audience. Okay. <laughs> Jesus spends 90% of his time getting ready. So by the age of 12, he's ready for his first trip to Jerusalem. 
Age of 12, a Jewish boy was entitled to be called Ben Hatorah, son of the law. And he could wear the phylacteries that his dad gave him uh, at the synagogue on Sabbath. And this year, now he's entitled to go down to the Passover celebration at Jerusalem. A little donkey saddled, and uh, there's some food and bedding piled on him, and the family assembles, and they travel south. They're walking, of course. They travel south, down through that narrow pass that uh, leads into the city of Nazareth, pass into the valley of Jezreel, alive with springtime's flowers, because it's springtime now. Across the Kishon River, past Shunem, with its memories of the prophet Elisha, past royal Jezreel, with... Now all it has are sculptured graves to remind of its past splendor. Past bare and dewless Gilboa and past sandy Taanach with its memories of Gideon and Barak. Past Megiddo where for the first time Jesus may have seen once again the eagles, the helmets, and the short swords of Roman infantry. And at a place called Enganim, which was in that era just lovely with fountains and shade and lovely gardens, the little family may have spent their first night. That's what it would have been like to, to travel south toward Jerusalem from Nazareth. Well, the next day comes the climb. Now they're going up into the mountains of Manasseh, and they wind through the fig yards and olive groves that fill that district. And the second night would probably find them someplace near Jacob's well in the fertile valley between Ebal and Gerizim not far from ancient Shechem. Day three, they walk past Shiloh and Gibeah of Saul and Bethel to Beeroth, and there by its pleasant uh, springs, there's a final camp. From that point, it'll be an easy uh, walk the next day into the site of Jerusalem. And there, uh, the walls are overshadowed with the eagle wings of Rome. Great Tower of Antonio soars up uh, near the temple, and the Roman soldiers are everywhere. But the temple still crowns the city. Its gilded roof and its marble colonnades are just awesome. Its stair steps up the hill of Zion, so you move up from the court of the Gentiles to the court of Israel to the court of the priests. And there in that massive building which houses Kodesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies, out front there are these massive pillars, marble pillars around which are twined grapevines made of hammered gold. That's what Jesus sees as he approaches the city. Now something happens to him. And for this, I'm moving into a source I happen to think is a blessed source of truth. It's called the spirit of prophecy. And the words and desire of ages put it this way. For the first time, the child Jesus looked upon the temple. He saw the white-robed priests performing their solemn ministry. He beheld a bleeding victim, bowed in prayer. Every act seemed to be bound up with his own life. The mystery of his mission was opening. <laughs> and it's here on that memorable occasion that Jesus' parents lost him. <laughs> Feast lasted for about a week. And the crowd started to pack and clear out, and Luke 2.43 says Jesus tarried in Jerusalem. And once again, Desire of Ages says it so well. Wrapped in the contemplation of these scenes, he did not remain beside his parents. He sought to be alone. When the Paschal services were ended, he still lingered in the temple courts, and when the worshipers departed from Jerusalem, 
he was left behind. Now, get the picture of what's really happening here, and you have to do a little bit of research into history to understand the full three-dimensional uh, stage on which this is happening. A day passes before Joseph and Mary even realize they've lost their, their child. They're now a day out. It's going to take them a day to return. And at this exact moment, the countryside is in ferment. There's danger out there. There's a, a lot of trouble out there. Because Archelaus, after 10 years of cruel and disgraceful reign, has been deposed by Rome and banished to France. Ten years of rain. That's another reason why I think Jesus was in Egypt for about two years. I won't bore you with the details, but you look at the historical facts and it all adds up. So Rome had annexed the province that Archelaus had ruled, instituted Roman taxation, and just a few years before, two very uh, active firebrands, Jewish activists, Judas of Gamala and the Pharisee Sadak had wrapped the countryside in revolt, in flame and sword, so that travel in this era is still dangerous. If you do it with a caravan of people, you're likely to be safe. Now, Mary and Joseph are fighting their way upstream against this flow of people in a countryside that's dangerous to travel in. They leave the shelter of the caravan. Now they're sick with worry. They've got that kind of gnawing worry only a parent can feel when they've lost a child, and they hunt for him for three long days. And on the third day, they hear that familiar voice, 12-year-old boy. They go to the temple, maybe Lishkath Hagazith, the hall of hewn stones, where the learned men of Israel not only judge, hold uh, Sanhedrin trials, but they also gather to dispute uh, theology. Might have been another portion of the temple, the halls of purchase. We don't know where. It doesn't matter where. Mary and Joseph hear that familiar voice, and he is surrounded by a galaxy of minds that are still gigantic in Jewish tradition. Let me give you some examples. Here is the crowd that 12-year-old boy has awed. Likely there was the famed Rabbi Hillel, one of the founders of the Mazora. His teaching is still a major school of Judaism in modern Jewish tradition today. Jews reverenced him almost as a second Moses. His son, Rabban Simeon, could likely have been there, and his grandson, Gamaliel, who will later on, a few years on, stop the Sanhedrin in their attempt to basically ruin the early Christian church. Hanan, whose other name was Annas, was likely there. He would be Jesus' future judge. There was a fellow named Bob Ben Buta, who, whom Herod had put his eyes out over some disagreement. He was there. He was held in high esteem. Nechaniah ben Hiskana, celebrated for victorious prayers. Yohanan ben Zachai, who predicted the destruction of the temple. He predicted the destruction of the second temple. Wealthy Joseph of Arimathea and timid but earnest Nicodemus. 
youthful Jonathan ben Uziel, who was later held in boundless honor in Hebrew scholarship for writing the celebrated Chaldean paraphrase. That's the galaxy of minds. This boy is confounding with questions they can't answer. Well, into this scene comes Mamila, <laughs> a Jewish mother. Can't you hear it? She comes in, she sees him, and you can almost hear the words in today's idiom, Yeshua, oy vey, oy gewalt, what are you trying to do, kill us with worry? <laughs> and Jesus responds by saying, I've got a job to do. Soon, I will be closer to you as your Redeemer than I am as your son. Let's cut to the chase, bottom line. If we are who we believe we are, heralds of the advent, people who are entitled to inform the world at the end of time, then maybe we need to get seriously back into the word. There's an enormous store of information, of truth here. We can't any longer read the Bible the way one might mow the golf course down here at Pala, a hundred acres wide and a half inch deep. Go vertically into the Word of God. Do your research. Maybe even dare to open a source called the Spirit of Prophecy, and you will find a treasure land of truth beyond anything we've explored to date. All right, somewhere along in here, Pastor, I'm going to tell a children's story, but I think something else has to happen first.